Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Well, wow. Awesome. It's really robust, guys. Thank you. Um, title of this teaching is, Who is this Jesus? Last week, Bob talked about us being a church of pastors and being people who care enough about each other, care enough, care enough about other people, uh, our friends, our family members, to bring them to a place, this place, where they can know Jesus. And then he cited a record in the first chapter of the Gospel of John where we can read about a guy named Andrew and a guy who doesn't get named, which I find to be really too bad for this guy. I mean, he went with Andrew and he saw Jesus and they hung out. He never comes up in his name. I hope we get to see him and know who this guy was. But anyway, they went to see Jesus and then right after that, it says in John 1.40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him what? We have found the Messiah. Parentheses, that is the Christ, Christos in Greek, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when you as a Jew in the first century heard this word, Messiah, or for that matter, Christos, if you heard it in Greek, it carried a very deep and powerful meaning. This was not a casual word. When, when Andrew said to Peter, we have found the Messiah, for Peter, that word was a giant word. It's an enormous word. Jesus had come to a nation of hope. Israel was in a mode of looking for a future that was much, much brighter than what they'd had experienced for centuries. It was a nation that not only had hope, but also despaired of this hope ever coming to pass. Perhaps that resonates with some of us. The Jews were immersed, though, in this national identity, not just of hope, but of history. They were a people that has a history that goes back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then you go to Adam, and they knew that they traced their lineage back to a guy named Abraham, but Abraham was in the lineage, of course, of Adam, and Abraham was the fix to the fall of man. And this is where the nation of Israel traced its heritage. They grew up learning about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They learned about Joseph and about slavery and exile in Egypt. They learned about Passover and escape and moving into through the Red Sea on dry land. They learned about the giving of the law, the building of the tabernacle and the temple, and how Yahweh came to dwell in his Shekinah glory between the cherubim over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. These were things that were told and retold, read and reread. They read about Joshua crossing the Jordan to, to take the land that God had promised. They knew well of the unified kingdom under David, and they knew also of the later fallen away of the tribes and of bad priests and false prophets and national disgrace due to idolatry. And they continued to lament the absence of Yahweh, who, as it was recorded in Ezekiel, left the temple, whose presence was gone, and yet they knew also in Isaiah, and particularly in Daniel, which was an extremely popular book in the first century, by the way, they knew that there was a time coming that the Jews could be assured that all this promise of God's covenant faithfulness would come to pass and he would return, Yahweh would return to dwell with Israel and this would come to pass when the Messiah came. 
So Andrew knew little about this man, Jesus, and Peter knew nothing about him. But what they knew is if this guy is the Messiah, the whole world is changing. And what they had hoped for is finally here. Now, if you invite someone to Grace Christian Fellowship, do you say to them, come and see and learn about the Messiah? And if you did say that, would you even know what you meant, let alone the person you're talking to? Messiah is not a word of the 21st century for us. And even for most of the people that I know who, who say that they're Jews, they are not practicing the Jewish religion that, like they did in the first century. Those stories have dissipated. The idea of a Messiah has also been diluted over time. But this, this isn't just a modern problem. It's a problem that also existed for the Gentiles in the first century because they didn't know what the Messiah meant either. But I'll tell you one thing. If we're going to lead people to Jesus, we have to have as solid an idea of what we think of him right now as Andrew had when he said to Peter, come and see, we have found the Messiah. When we say come and learn about Jesus, who is this Jesus that we are inviting people to learn about? Now, in the first century, the first time that we... That's okay. Ah, it's okay. Are we good? Yeah. Okay. So in the first century, this idea of uh, Messiah, like I said, amongst the Gentiles, would not have been understood. And the first one to preach to the Gentiles was Peter. And you perhaps know the story. It was a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius was a man who was living in Caesarea. He was known and respected by his Jewish neighbors, but he was not Jewish. He was known for his generosity, for his integrity, and for a heart that was seeking after God. And we know this heart was a true seeking heart because God honored that seeking and sent an angel and told him to send men to Joppa where this guy Peter is staying with a guy named Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside. And so Cornelius sends men as he was instructed and Peter, with a little help of a vision that just happened to happen right before those men knocked on the outside gate, that God gave him a vision that helped him understand it's okay to go with these Gentiles. So Peter went with them, and he followed the men back to Cornelius' home in Caesarea. And in Acts chapter 10, we're going to read, and starting in verse 30, this record. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, now he's talking to Peter and the guys who came with Peter from Joppa. He said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. There was quite a crowd in Cornelius' house. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him 
and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, parentheses, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, And to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking with tongues and extolling God. A thing to note here is when he mentions that God sent to Israel preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, a parenthesis. Why did he throw in this parenthesis, he is Lord of all? Because they would not have understood the Messiah in the context of the national identity of the Jews and all the history that we just talked about before. They They didn't know that. But what they would have understood is when he said he is curios of all. I mean, these people really would have understood a Gentile in the first century, particularly somebody who's living in Caesarea, like Cornelius and his household, would very much understand this word curios. This city of Caesarea was formed and was founded by uh, a man who was a Jew called Herod. He was King Herod, and he was a collaborator with Rome. And to honor Augustus Caesar, he founded this city in 2nd century B.C. And for nearly 500 years, Rome had been a republic run by a senate. But in 27 B.C., a guy named Julius Caesar decided, enough, enough, I'm going to turn this into basically a dictatorship declare myself emperor, the Senate can still be here, but I'm going to tell him everything to do. And so that's what he did. And it was marginally successful because after a while, he was assassinated by the Senate. And that led to a bunch of civil wars. But after that, his adopted son, Octavius, uh, came out victorious, and he took the rule of Caesar. And the Senate bestowed on him the name Augustus, And Octavius declared himself, he gave himself a different name, the Son of God. Son of God because Julius Caesar, his father, had declared himself a divinity. And everybody said, well, that's fine. In fact, the fastest growing religion in first century Middle East was the worship of the Caesar. So now, when you use this word curios to a bunch of Gentiles who are familiar with Rome, living in Caesarea, what what do they think of? Well, they think of Caesar. (laughs) They think of this is the Lord. Because in the first century church, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus. And when Peter told these guys that Jesus is curios, he was saying something that to the Gentile mind would have been as meaningful and as deep as to the Jewish mind when they heard Messiah. To the Gentile, curios said it all. But what about today? 
what are we to do today? Because we can say Jesus is Lord, and that's almost a trite saying. Does anybody know what a Lord is? When Garrett talked about this, he suggested, well, let's call him leader, you know, who brings value to our lives. And that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is the way Jesus himself described it. In Matthew 28, 18, it said, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority has been given to me, is the way Jesus described it. So that's a, maybe a good place to start. How do we explain who this Jesus is? Well, he's the guy in charge. He's in charge. Does that ring a bell to it? I mean, we understand that, right? We've, we're all, always in situations in our lives where at one time or another, there's somebody in charge. I mean, you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, you learn really quick. There's somebody in charge. And if you try to do something outside of their charge, it doesn't go well because they have great authority that they can wield with you. At least I've heard that's the case. I certainly wouldn't have any personal experience. But Jesus lived a life as if he was in charge. He didn't just say it's been given to him. When he lived his life, he went around speaking and acting like he was in charge. I mean, after he gets baptized, he goes into the wilderness, and who does he stand up to and back down? The devil himself. Then he leaves that, and he goes to a wedding in Cana, and what does he do to the water? He has such authority. He is in such charge. I'm going to turn it into wine. He turns water into wine. He exercised authority over all sorts of things in his time and in his ministry. He had the authority of one who knew God so well that when he spoke, he amazed the listeners because they said, this guy is speaking with an authority that we have not seen before. He would talk to religious, political, business leaders, and he would speak to them in a way that he he would say what was on his mind. He would control the conversation, whether they liked it or not. Jesus was very much living a life in charge. He was confronted by the rulers of the world, spiritual and human, and he lived out and spoke truth to that power. He was actually just living out what Adam had been given. As the last Adam, as the son of man, he was simply showing this is what it's like when a human being in full takes on the authority that God has given us as human beings in the garden, and we are his image bearers into the world, and we carry with us his attributes and his nature. And that's what we minister. And that's simply what he was showing. He was showing that he had the dominion, just as Adam and Eve had first had, over living things and inanimate things created by God. And this authority and dominion can continue throughout his ministry right up into, to and through the crucifixion. In John 13, 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now I want you to think about that phrase. He loved them to the end. And I want you to think about that in the context of his authority, his being in charge. 
Because if you were going to share to Gentiles in the first century that there's this guy, Jesus, and he walked around and he talked and he did great many wonders and works and miracles, and then he was taken captive by the Romans and crucified, and he's in charge, they would look at you like, how is that possible that he is in charge when he was crucified on a cross by the Roman Empire? And today, you can say to people, he's in charge, and they're looking around the world and they're going, I don't, I don't see it. If he's in charge, he's not much of a, a, a benevolent ruler, because look around. Does it look like Jesus is in charge here? So the real question is, well, wait a minute. The Bible says he has all authority in heaven and earth. So what is it that we're not seeing? What is it that we don't understand? Because if we don't understand this, and how are we going to invite people to know Jesus, who is in charge, and make sense of it? That phrase, he loved them to the end, that's the key to unlock this. The power and authority that Jesus used to care for his disciples, show them how to care for each other by washing their feet after the so-called Last Supper, to promise them about the coming of the Spirit and his revealing to them the all truth, to prepare them for what was about to happen when he was captured. All of this was done in love. He loved them to the end. It was the love that Jesus wielded in his massive temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane that allowed him to be victorious. It was love that he wielded to speak truth to his captors and withstand those who tortured, spit upon, and reviled him. It was love that he brandished in the face of dark spiritual powers who were attempting to overcome his authority by the cruelty and death of the cross. It was love that gave him the power to transcend the torture, forgive those who delivered it, speak comfort and promise to the one of the criminals crucified near to him, and to speak Psalm 22 so that those of Israel in hearing distance could hear the word of God and be comforted to say that this indeed is the Messiah. It was the power of love that changed the cross from a sign of power and terror by the rulers of this world to the sign of the power of love that overcomes all would-be authorities on earth. Jesus is truly Lord, and he exercised this immense God-given power with the ultimate force, which is love. And this is the background that when we say, come and see and get to know the one who is truly in charge, this is what we mean. This is what we mean. Do you know who is really in charge in heaven and earth? Do you know that? Do you know what he is doing with that authority? Do you know what he's going to do with that authority? Because if you look around right now and just try to reason it out, you're not going to see it, are you? But if you understand who this is, if this is the one who has authority over heaven and earth, and we are under and we are with his authority, and how do we wield that authority? What does that look like? Does it look like what we would expect in our culture? Does it look like that we are, you know, some sort of business icon or some powerful leader politically? Does it look like we have great wealth? Is that how we exercise the authority over heaven and earth? Is that how Jesus does it? Does that, is, because in the Gentile world, that's what they expected. If you're Lord, where's your army? Where's, where's your kingdom? Where's your castle? You know, where's the terror that you're going to inflict on me if I don't obey you? 
If you were Jewish and you were looking for the Messiah, many of them were looking for a conquering king like David that was going to come and unify the kingdom, kick Romans' butt, and establish and set up Israel. And yet here's this guy who says, I have authority over heaven and earth. Who is this Jesus to say that? Well, he is simply the one who embodied the nature of God to such a degree that he was love and that his will was perfectly aligned with the God who is love. And when he wielded that, nothing could overcome it. And that is still true today. There is nothing that can overcome the love of God in Christ Jesus in your heart when you wield that. That authority will trump everything. It will heal the broken soul, as Bob talked about. It will bring people into a place where they can get to learn and know this one who has authority, such authority that their very soul can be transformed. Their very soul, their, their nature as a human being can be transformed and they can become conformed to his, his nature. That is the power of love. That's the power of the, the one who has authority over heaven and earth. And it's as, as alive and well and active today as it ever was. This isn't about religion in the sense that the Western world has imagined for the last 200 years. This is about everything. His power and authority extends to everything. It's about life, about art, it's about the universe, it's about justice and death and money, it's about politics, it's about philosophy, culture, it's about being human. This is what Jesus Christ came to declare, a person, a human being in full, and to show us how to live that out. And now, by way of his spirit that he sent, it, that can come into our lives, he is able to take his abode with the Father in us, so that we can then live in that kingdom and to operate from that perspective. And we can wield the authority with the same you know, forceful power that he wielded, which is simply love. To will the good for someone else, that's love. To just say, I am going to take all of my abilities, my intention, my free will, I am going to exercise on your behalf. In this situation, in this moment, to do something good and to help you become one who can live in the good. That's it. That's what love is. And if you want to know the power of this and you want to know how, what the kind of the force multiplier of love is in the world, I want you to think about what happened in the Roman Empire from the first century to about the third century. They didn't have internet, by the way. They didn't have phones. They couldn't text. Most people couldn't read. There were no TV stations, no radio stations, no cars. You know, there was, it was a slow go in terms of communication. And yet, in, a, in 200 years, half of the world, half of the population of the world, around the Mediterranean, which is where it was happening in the world, became Christian, decided that this guy is in charge. This guy, Jesus, is in charge. And for them, the cross took on the symbol of the power and the authority and the dominion of love over even the most ruthless rulers of this world and the rulers of darkness that manipulate them. This is what we have to offer to people, folks. I mean, and, and this is what we are called to do when we talk about discipling people or pastoring people. This is, this is what we do. And, and it will have the same powerful effect in a human life today as it did in the first century. 
because he is Lord. <laughs> it's not, I'm not just saying that, and you're like, you should trust me. No, he is Lord. If you want to you see that, do it. And you will see the authority and the power of Jesus Christ that, has, that he has in heaven and earth. You will see it wielded. But it won't be in the way that the world expects. It'll, it'll come out as a smile on a face that hasn't smiled for, since they can remember. It'll come out on a, on a soul that's healed and a heart that's been broken for so long they don't know what it's like to be whole anymore. And all of a sudden they're crying tears of joy because they're, they're free of it. That's the gentle but powerful way that the authority of the Lord over heaven and earth works with us and through us to execute his righteousness. So yes, we are inviting people to come and learn and see how the love of God in Christ, in you individually, us as a community, will rule and triumph in this day, in this time. He is the Lord. He has authority over all things. The power of that rulership is wielded through our love as his fellow laborers, his ambassadors, his pastors, his fellow citizens. And one day, we will be clothed in his glorious garments, and we will continue to proclaim and minister the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to invite you to join me in worshiping God, and I want, I want us to worship together, and we're going to do this in a, in a bit of a different way this morning. Um, and those of you on the live stream can do this wherever you are, if you choose to. Um, but we're going to break up into groups of three to five people, you know, just small groups. And I want to enjoy worshiping together in these small groups, you know, and really think about... Um, what we've heard today and think about the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority that he has in heaven and earth that God has given him. And to help facilitate this, um, I selected Psalm 96, which you can read together. So I'd like you to get into small groups and then read slowly Psalm 96 and really let the words penetrate your minds and your hearts. And then take some time to share with each other what just Briefly, like what is elicited in your mind and in your heart when you hear these words regarding our God and Father who so loved us that he sent his only begotten Son to save us and to be the one in charge. So let's take about 10 or 15 minutes in our groups, and then after that time I'll come back up here and we'll close out the fellowship. Okay? Does that sound good? Good. Time to move. Thank you.